0: Well, um, I addressed a trade union uh, conference recently and their leaders welcomed me very heartily and said, we're so pleased that you're here. So I just gave a wise word that, wait until I've spoken, <laughs> so, <laughs> so let's not uh, celebrate too soon. Um, but allow me uh, to say uh, good evening and assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Of course, many people don't believe it, but I am a Muslim. Um, so, allow me to thank our program director, Dr. Tariq Yusuf, senior fellow and director of the Middle East Council on Global Affairs, excellencies, ambassadors accredited to the state of Qatar. Uh, fellow academics, I still consider myself an academic, although as a politician, I do lots of non-academic things. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, I wish to begin by thanking the Middle East Council on Global Affairs for convening this dialogue at what I believe is a critical time for global relations, given uncertainty today about the role of international law. All of us are concerned at the tragedy that is underway in Palestine. The scale of death and destruction is unprecedented in this century. Observing the harm that is the daily experience of Palestinian people raises startling images for us of the apartheid experience of South Africa's oppressed. And it is for that reason that Uh, we thought we'd talk today about these elements of similarity, South Africa and Palestine, lessons from the past for the present crisis. Just as we see in Palestine, the spatial design of apartheid was constructed as an urban prison, easy to access and difficult to exit. Workers had no security and survived at the whim of the oppressor. Laws were arbitrary and designed to enforce oppression rather than guarantee justice. And of course, property ownership was not protected in law and property could be seized without compensation. These are elements of apartheid South Africa And we find them in Israel today. We find them in Palestine today. Hence, Human Rights Watch and other NGOs calling out Israel as reflecting an apartheid state. The apartheid regime was vicious, discriminatory, and dispossessed people of their homes, their livelihoods, as well as their hopes and dreams. The system, was correctly characterized as a crime against humanity. But we were fortunate as South Africans in that our leaders managed to secure a level of international solidarity that caused the world to speak on our behalf as we fought for freedom. Very few speak for Palestine today. The atrocities that we see on our screens have caused ordinary people in nations across the globe to come out in their hundreds of thousands to protest against the genocide and ethnic cleansing we are witnessing in Gaza and the West Bank. My city, Cape Town, had one of the largest mass protests we've had since the end of apartheid and we see similar scenes in London and other capitals around the world. People are finally showing up to make their voices heard. Jewish people for peace have also around the world joined the protests to make it clear that these atrocities cannot be committed in their name. Of course, as South Africa, we condemn the loss of innocent lives, and the violations of international law and the norms of international law. And we condemn these breaches both on the part of the state of Israel as well as on the part of Hamas. Our country's foreign policy and liberation ethos is rooted in principles that were outlined in what is called our Freedom Charter which was essentially our attempt at writing a constitution while we were suffering under the oppression of apartheid. We tried to set out what kind of future we wanted to see, what form of governance, what kind of policy rules would we want in place as the oppressed people of South Africa once we were free. And so our leaders, our organizers in the liberation movements went from village to village, from town to town, from street to street, asking the people, What would you want in a South African final document if you had to craft a charter for freedom? So this document is called the Freedom Charter. Written in 19. 19- 55, and adopted at an amazing Congress of the People, it was called, in 1956. Following that Congress, our leaders were all arrested, 159 of them, and other organizers, and there ensued a a treason trial in South Africa of all these leaders. My father and grandfather were the only father and son that were part of this group of treason trialists. This is what the Freedom Charter said about global relationships. I quote, there shall be peace and friendship, 1955 writing under apartheid, and South Africa will be a fully independent state, which respects the rights and sovereignty of all nations. And South Africa shall strive to maintain world peace and the settlement of all international disputes by negotiation, not war. 1955, ordinary South Africans gave life to these words. This perspective of the Freedom Charter remains etched in the memory of our people and has been embedded in the constitution which contains the laws that govern South Africa today. We shaped our constitution for peace and reconciliation. And as a free South Africa, we have attempted to operate from the premise that forming a modern sustained democracy has to be based on embracing diversity and striving to entrench equality. These are the objectives, the aspirations that lie within our constitution and that drive our daily activity. As I recall these words, I'm reminded of an excerpt from Nelson Mandela's Long Walk to Freedom, where he writes about his reflections as he drove through the then province of Natal in the 1950s and 60s as an organizer. His thoughts reflect his views on what a freedom fighter should be like. He wrote, shortly after crossing the river on the border My eye was caught by the Majubas, the steep hills I have seen on several occasions before on my way to and from Durban. This time, I remembered that this was the historic battlefield on which the intrepid Afrikaner once stoutly defended his independence and shook British imperialism. Was it the same Afrikaner who fought so tenaciously for his own freedom, who had now become such a tyrant and who was persecuting us? I wonder if similar logic should be applied to the struggle for freedom that we see in Palestine. The people of Israel were persecuted and brutally and cruelly subjected to Nazi hatred, can we perhaps ask why after such a painful history you would subject any people, let alone Palestinians, to such brutal violence? As a country, we remain committed to the right of both Israel and Palestine to exist, with Israel, peaceful and secure side by side with a Palestinian state that is peaceful and secure. We are also aware that many Palestinians and Israelis are of the view that a just and lasting solution may include approaches that facilitate Palestinians and Israelis living together peacefully under security arrangements where all their human rights are guaranteed and protected. There are those views on both sides. What has been unsettling is that we have helplessly seen years of inaction by the international community as ongoing settler expansion into Palestinian territories and ongoing violations of multiple United Nations resolutions on the issue of settlement expansion continue. I've always said one of the things that I dislike is double standards, and I consistently pointed out to the double standard we observed in the reaction to Russia as contrasted with over 70 years of Israeli occupation of Palestine. And it's a double standard that all of us must reject. We've made the point that if we want to uphold international law, we must agree that it applies equally to everyone. Whether you're African, whether you're Palestinian, whether you're Asian, whoever you are, it must apply equally. It can't be that international law is the preserve of some and not the preserve of others. We also do not agree that we should say we must all follow a rules-based order. But the rules are very different for some and very advantageous for others. We do not accept those distinctions and it is what causes the world to have the equality that we see today. Take, for example, the fact that The number of illegal settlers on Palestinian land has now reached over 700,000 people. And there are plans to increase that number over the coming years. So essentially, the plan is to destroy Palestinians and really remove them, erase them from history. And the world and the most powerful have been silently watching this Decade after decade after decade as South Africans we know this displacement very well we suffered similarly when black people were displaced from their land and homes under the forced removals during the implementation of the group areas act in South Africa under apartheid I recently described in Parliament the experience of my grandparents who lost their home and land to the apartheid state without any compensation. The current assault on Gaza is something that all of us as human beings should reject. Of course, the Hamas attack on civilian targets is something we also cannot accept. But collective punishment and the relentless assault on civilian targets is a blight on humanity and is a true human tragedy. It also offends international human rights law, international humanitarian law, and yet no action is taken. Just last week, the UN Secretary General referred to Gaza as a children's graveyard, with over 4,500 innocent children killed. And the death toll among UN workers has reached an unprecedented 89, had reached at that time. Gaza authorities estimate that a further 1,500 children are missing and are likely under the rubble of bombed residential buildings, hospitals, and schools. Of course, I'm not claiming by any means that the South African experience is a panacea for all conflicts all over the world, because I do believe that in any conflict and any struggle, context does matter. For us in South Africa, The early 1990s, as well as the settlement we achieved in 1994, resulted from intense efforts that were directed at creating the conditions for talks. What were these conditions? Some say they include South Africa's 1976 student uprisings and the disproportionate use of force by the apartheid regime which then became a catalyst for a set of processes that began to force a negotiated settlement. The internal developments we had in South Africa at that time coincided with a changing global geopolitical landscape. All of this collectively together combined to compel the apartheid government that it had to enter into negotiations with the ANC. And of course, we also remember that after many, many years of persuasion, the American Congress moved sanctions legislation, which was actually tabled by then Senator Biden. And once those sanctions were afoot, the apartheid state realized that engagement had to happen. Many Western countries with business interests in South Africa had previously attempted to encourage the liberation movements to accept peaceful, piecemeal reforms. These were reforms often favored by the apartheid government and fortunately our leaders refused to accept these little carrots. This is going to happen to the Palestinian people as well. If a process of negotiation gets underway, even their friends will tell the men, "You know, it's something. you must accept it. Just take it, you'll have peace. But actually it will be nothing." That's what we realized, and that's why we refused those peaceful, piecemeal reforms that were directed at us. Everyone knows that essentially, there were a battery of secret meetings between the African National Congress and the then Apartheid National Party and that these meetings were held outside of South Africa in an environment in which they could be frank and open with each other and get to know each other. In September 1985, wealthy business leaders from South Africa then such as the chairperson of the very wealthy and successful Anglo-American company traveled to meet ANC representatives in Lusaka. They went to meet people they'd previously considered monsters and had open engagement with them about the possibility of negotiations. There were also several interactions. The then National Party denied it was having these meetings but we knew they were underway quietly and secretly, and in the late 80s, the apartheid government began to have talks with Nelson Mandela while he was still in prison. So a process of change takes many uh, different forms, and we have to be ready for that. In January 1985, we remember that Bota announced to Parliament that his government was considering the release of Mr. Mandela. He said that this would only happen if Mr. Mandela renounced the armed struggle and agreed to return to his village in the Eastern Cape corner of Kudu, small little village he was born in. Fortunately for us, Mr. Mandela rejected the offer for this conditional release. He wrote a letter which his daughter, Zinzi Mandela, read in Soweto in February 1985. He said in that letter, what freedom am I being offered while the organization of the people remains banned? What freedom am I being offered when I may be arrested on a pass offense? What freedom am I being offered to live my life as a family with my wife who remains in banishment hundreds of miles away? What freedom am I being offered when I must ask for permission to live in an urban area? What freedom am I being offered when I need a stamp in my pass to seek work? What freedom am I being offered when my very South African citizenship is not respected? Only free men can negotiate. Prisoners cannot enter into contracts. We must keep this in mind as we encourage the Palestinian leaders to enter a process of negotiations. One can only imagine the tragic answers that might emerge today if the young then Zinzi Mandela were a young Palestinian Zinzi Mandela and asked the same questions. I recall a young Palestinian icon, Ahed Tamimi who's been the voice of oppressed Palestinians and a youth activist who has already been detained by the Israeli state for a lengthy period of incarceration and who was again arrested just last week in her village of Nabi Saleh. Just as under apartheid in our own country, the young voices that dare to speak truth to power, and are not afraid to join peaceful demonstrations, are muzzled and abused by the state. And it's happening time and time again. I recall when the National Party eventually announced that they would free Mr. Mandela in 1990, February, there were 75,000 children in prison in South Africa at that time. All young kids were protesting on the street. 75,000, unbelievable. I think one of the most unfortunate features of this moment is that the discussions around a two-state solution are taking place in a geopolitical environment that is really fraught with polarization, contradictions, and duplicity. Of course, it's interesting for us to always recall that the apartheid regime also attempted to create impoverished Bantu Bantustans. But they were thwarted by the principled insistence by the ANC that we wanted a South Africa that should be a united, non-racial, non-sexist, circular state. This was our insistence and we would not accept having little bits of territory where we would be retained like animals in some form of a small cage. But I think while the situation today might be really difficult, it's absolutely imperative that we don't succumb to despair. We can't lose the optimism that we can reverse the current situation. I believe in order to secure sustainable solution to this seemingly intractable conflict, all peace and justice-loving activists of the world need to mobilize a wide-ranging net of institutions, which will include business, religious organizations and civil society formations. We need an activist block of immense weight. Of course, the Palestinian cause enjoys a great deal of popular support globally amongst ordinary people, as I said earlier, as shown by the recent protests in many capitals. But sadly, while the people may be supportive, government policies often are not. In our view, the only avenues for long-term engagement depend on the cessation of hostilities and a sustainable ceasefire to ensure the creation of proper humanitarian corridors, the adherence to UN resolutions, adherence to the rules of war in international law, and of course, the protection of civilians, vulnerable groups and children in particular. And of course, the hostages must also be freed, safe to return to their home and country. To achieve these key objectives, the only possible route is broader international support for the cause of the people of Palestine. And it's been interesting how in the media we refer to the actions of Hamas as though they are the actions of Palestinian people, the entire in Gaza and West Bank. And we never mention occupation, never. It's as though it didn't exist. Hamas's atrocious actions just happened. We must ensure broader international support for Palestinian people, strong solidarity just as we enjoyed as South Africans, And we should strengthen international calls and activity by our governments for a two-state solution process. I believe as well that alongside these actions, attention must be given to the urgent issue of UN reform. The Security Council of the United Nations has failed the people of Gaza and the West Bank. We need a much more effective United Nations that can prevent war, protect civilians, and ensure security for vulnerable people in conflict situations. The Security Council has shown itself inept at doing all of these things at this critical time. The protests that we're having should have a clear objective. And that should be to urge governments to act to save lives, to act to call for and act on achieving the objective of an immediate cessation of hostilities, on the freeing of all hostages, and on the establishment of a UN-led process of intensive negotiations for a two-state solution and a durable peace. All of us must be activists for peace and security. I'm really worried that if we don't act, history is going to judge us extremely harshly for failing to secure a just and sustainable life for all the children of Palestine and of Israel. I know that when you speak for Palestine, people think you are anti-Israel. This is absolutely wrong and it's just an attempt to misdirect our attention away from those who do not enjoy freedom into a form of uh, description as being prejudiced rather than honestly addressing the issue of injustice and freedom. These are key issues that have to be given attention. We cannot dodge them. We cannot dissemble we cannot pretend, the world needs to act. We cannot continue to have the levels of injustice and insecurity that are caused by this conflict. And of course, the key concern must be that should justice be delayed or denied, all of us are going to be engulfed in an inferno. And so it is vital that we lend our voices to addressing this current crisis effectively. Well, I hope I haven't annoyed you too much. And I hope that what I have done is cause you to think, think for freedom, think for justice. Thank you very much.